From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. And a very warm welcome to the Pump Jack DataWorks Big Interview. Um, I'm joined this week, not by Grant Williams, but by the inestimable Roger Mitchell. Are you there in Lake Como? I am, as always. I'm on the lake. I'm getting my sailing kit ready. Uh, and it's a delight to speak to you, as always, uh, Captain. We are getting into your world of ships and sailing and walking the plank. And I'm looking forward to this one, sir. Well, and yes, the, the nautical slash sort of sailing thing is so appropriate because once again, we're, we're really privileged to be joined by, I think, sporting royalty on Are You Not Entertained. We've had the likes of Rory McIlroy, Sir Chris Hoy, Sir Matthew Pinsent, Gary Player, Lord Sebastian Coe. We've we've had a lot of a lot of towering guests, but our next guest, Sir Russell Coots, who is the CEO of Sail JP is truly a colossus within the, the sport of sailing. For those that don't know, Sail GP is this new sports sailing championship that he founded uh, alongside with the Oracle or Oracle founder, Larry Ellison. And it's going great guns, and we'll get into the guts of that. But Sir Russell Coote's CV on sailing alone is astonishing. He, he, he got into sailing being down in the South Island in New Zealand, um, not that much to do other than rugby, I suspect, but he got on a boat and he ended up being the most successful helmsman in America's Cup history, which is astonishing in itself. Uh, a five times winner of what is really the the pinnacle of the sport. He also won gold in the 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles and is a 12 times world champion uh, sailor and two times sailor of the year. It's a CV that probably will never be repeated. He is <laughs> the Phil Taylor. Uh, he won't thank me for that. But he is the Phil Taylor of darts fame uh, of sailing. So without further ado, Sir Russell Coots, a very warm welcome to the uh, the big interview. It's wonderful to have you on the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be on the show. And we'd like to sort of kick off the show. Uh, people like yourselves, you've had huge illustrious careers and we, we've sort of uh, already detailed the many things that you've done in sailing. But I'm intrigued. Where did it all start, this passion, both for, for sport in general, as a, as a good Kiwi, I suspect it was uh, expected of you, but in particular sailing? How did it all start and how did you get the, the real bug? Well, my father was the one that probably got our whole family into, into involved in the sport. Uh, in those days, of course, we well, he built the boats at home. I think one of the things about sports is it can be a great family a catalyst to, to, for a lot of things. You know, whether it be travelling away to events and so forth, they end up being great memories. And, uh, you know, so for us growing up in New Zealand, that was a big part of it. And, and um, I got introduced to sailing, absolutely loved it. Loved the connection. I, I think, you know, there's, there's sports like... Um, uh, snow skiing, sailing, and so forth, or surfing—that you can, you've got that level of independence. You can you can choose, you know, how hard to push yourself. You're obviously very connected with nature, and they—I find them very very stimulating to to be part of. Um, so yeah, that's that's how it all started. And that's how it started. And when did you know you were any good? I mean, I was looking through the almanac, and I think only uh, Admiral Nelson could probably uh, claim to be a better, <laughs> a better sailor than you, or certainly more successful, well, until until Trafalgar, which obviously didn't work out too well for him. But when did you know you had something a bit special? How old were you? Well, that, that's the thing. You know, I, I think a lot of sports people would say the same as this, is that as a sports person, you're always looking at what you can improve. And so it's this continuous drive to improve. So you're never really rating yourself as being necessarily good at what you do. You might have a confidence that you can win certain events and so forth, but there's always stuff to work on. And the moment that stops is, is the time to give up, really, because it takes a lot of effort and discipline and so forth. And 
the work ethic to, to be a top sports person's phenomenal, you know. So at some point, of course, you 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 get get to the point where that work ethic isn't quite where it needs to be and and, and also you you age out. Well, of course, both those things happen with me. But I, I don't know. I mean, I started having success at junior sailing. I enjoy competition. I'm competitive. And, you know, I was always, you know, chasing results. And and so I, I, I don't really know. One of the funny things I found in competition was as soon as you'd have a big win, I would start worrying about, you know, what was next and and huh. and, you know, worrying about people overtaking me and, you know, so being a particularly a professional sports person is a tough thing because you're always judged on your last performance. And and I know that that sounds like a bit of a cliche, but it's the, it's a fact. You know, it's a fact. You, you 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 get forgotten very very fast the moment you stop performing. Was there one moment? That, I mean, I've talked to a few, quite a few people who've been at the very top of their game. Was there a lucky break that you had, or was there a mentor you had? Was there someone? who, when you looked at it, that sliding door moment that made you you'd be a young, successful sailor, and then suddenly there was a sort of teleportation into the very big league, was there someone that you kind of ascribe your career to? I remember the great Sir Gareth Edwards, uh, rugby player, he, he, he knows that there was one teacher that got him on the track that took him to, to great things. Did that happen for you, or is it more of a progression? Oh, I think there were many influences for me, you know, not just sports people either. You know, there, there were many people that uh, I took business lessons out of that and, and applied to sport and vice versa. So I can't really pin. I mean, there, there was a sailor called Paul Alvstrom who was an Olympic great. He, he, he won uh, four Olympic gold medals. You know, he, he did it in different years. So it's it's a it's a real challenge to do that. He won an incredible amount of world championships in different roles as well. So, so he was sort of my idol as a as a young kid, and I, I was trying to emulate him, both in the way he sailed the boat, pictures, and so forth. And in those days, of course, it wasn't like today. You didn't have video imagery and so forth. The kids today learn so much quicker than we did, you know, because of that. So, so Russell, you know, um, I, I was listening there to you talking about the role of your father there, and I know a lot of people. As parents, they, they they encourage their their kids to do sport, and then there comes that moment when, sometimes, rarely, like in your case, the child is good at it. How did your dad, with all that passion, kind of like push you towards sailing as opposed to following your 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 academic career? I'm always curious to work out what the family dynamic is. <laughs> well, yeah, that's quite a funny one actually, because he grew up in the depression. Um, the Great Depression, is, and so to him, you really had to be a doctor, a lawyer, yeah, you know, uh, some sort of professional career, you know. And so his objective was to get me to university, and and and, and I did engineering, you know. But then I finished my engineering degree in 1987, which of course was there was a massive uh, share market crash, and there was no work, and. He actually said to me at that stage, you know, funnily enough, New Zealand was challenging for the America's Cup out of nowhere, you know. I mean, yeah. nobody thought it would be really possible and, uh, you know, it was just a, a sort of a bit of a dream in those days. And so he said to me, well, listen, you can't, you know, there's no work in engineering. Why don't you sail for a few years? And then I think he thought, well, and then he can come back to getting a real job after that, you know. And of course, I, I never, I never got to the second part. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it wasn't as though it was a, a scripted uh, career pathway, you know. But one of the things, you know, continuing on the kind of like um, career, you know, that you know, and and the things that I've listened to. Um, we'll get on to CLGP, I'm sure, for, for the rest of this interview. Uh, but the, one of the things you talk about there is that it's giving a, a much clearer career pathway to young men and women that that, that want to adopt this sport. Um, whereas in your day, I would think that being what it principally is an Olympic sport that, that is a every four-year event, it's pretty hard to like make your way in life when, yeah, you know, you can be the top of your profession, your sporting profession, but it's not paying the bills, is it? Oh, absolutely. To a degree, it's still like that today. You know, it's, 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 we're changing it, but it's, 
there's still an element of that. And and um, in my case, you know, I, I it was a fortunate um, chain of events. First of all, New Zealand challenge for the America's Cup. Secondly, I was it was right at the stage where I was winning Olympic medal. You know, uh, so. That got me noticed enough to be considered for the team. I then essentially took a punt, and and largely because of the you know stock market crash and so forth, uh, took a bit of a punt and used my own funding to to go out and compete internationally on what we referred to in those days as the world match racing circuit. Yeah, and that was sort of a feeder series to develop match racing skills which was all you know sort of relevant to the america's cup in those days and and got a team together got did well at that got noticed enough and then made it into the america's cup but then really the real uh, branch came when when i went overseas worked offshore first of all for lingi and then you know for ultimately and still working for larry ellison yeah but of course, that's not really a pathway that would be available to most people. There was a lot of luck involved in that. There was a lot of timing and so forth. And so what we're trying to do today is is really create something that's much more definable where young kids get drawn into the sport because it's a more entertaining, more exciting sport. That, again, wasn't really the case in, in, in my day. Um, so these new selling platforms like sale gp that you know in particular that are these fast exciting adrenaline fueled sort of style of racing 15 minutes long 10 minute long final that's really been a game changer in terms of the watchability of this product you know i used to walk into when i was first of all involved in the business side of the sport and trying to uh, drum up television broadcast interest in it. I walked into David Hill, who of course was oh, yes. a legend in the you know with the, the Fox Network. Murdoch yes. pulled him to essentially create that in the in the US and and in fact probably even worldwide. And David Hill was a he was he was passionate about the sport, but he he described it as white triangles on a blue background that's impossible to understand, and that's what it was. And yep. we didn't even know the duration of the races in those days. They they could be an hour and a half long. They could be three hours. They might never finish. And, in fact, you know, the time for changes on the course and so forth, like positional changes and so forth, it might be 10 minutes, which, of course, is clearly, you know, for an absolute sailing, mad, passionate sailing aficionado, it may have held their interest. But for the general sports fan, of course, that was just, you know, a recipe for some pretty boring switch off yeah you know yeah so once this new format arrived and and then really it was larry allison who came up with the idea look if we can't make this understandable on television we're never going to succeed so so he said what i want to have happen is rather than and this is pretty much his exact words rather than us looking at a graphic and not the real images. I want to look at the real images, so the real video images, and superimpose the graphics over the top of it. And I'll get to why this is important from a business in a moment. But that really was a game changer because you know the augmented reality graphics that were superimposed over the water, all of a sudden made it more understandable not only for the sailing fan but for the casual sports observer, and. More than that, we're able to frame the field of play, which have, have then, of course, changed the dynamic of the racing altogether as well. So rather than having these races that were spread out, that things might not happen for minutes, the boats used to now arrive at the boundaries and are now forced to go back and, and, and meet each other. So you get these, you get more regular interactions on the course, more passing, more excitement, just more drama. And so straight away, you, you had this sort of quantum shift. And, and, and in a way, when I go in and talk to people about Sail GP, one of the challenges is actually positioning it such that they don't have the old image of sailing, which, of course, most people do. You know, they, yep. they sort of view yep. it as white triangles on the blue background with on a Sunday afternoon with a couple of beers and, and you know, you're sitting there and you're relaxing out on the water. And so... 
And, and to see a sale GP event, a modern event that is really completely different to how what people's expectations would be. You know, forming the boundary, for example, changed it in so many ways, not only the, the actual sports product, but then allowed us to commercialise that product and also explain it much better. So commercialise it in the, in the sense of all of a sudden we now had a stadium that we're able to give credits to, to, to our partners, so branding credits and, and so forth. But we're also able to use the data on screen to explain things in a way that, and we're right at the beginning of this, by the way, you know, I mean, we're, we're now, of course, um, probably leading the field in, in this area. But in terms of using data to explain things, what's actually happening and giving people more access to, to, to that data and also media feeds and sound and so forth, that's really been a game changer, as well as this whole transformation to digital technology, because really the timing of that's been helpful for, for us as well. So, Russell, let's let's break break some of this down a little bit because there there are, as I said in the last show, we had. Um, I, I think this is um, so emblematic of everything that's happening in sport. I think I read somewhere that you used the phrase "most sports don't get a chance to reset." And I think on this podcast, we are very much of a belief that the reset button is more appropriate than the marginal gains um, evolution button. You have reset sailing exactly as you've just described. It now is what I would call 2021 fit for purpose as a media property as uh, something that younger audiences can appeal to, something that hits all the buttons for sponsors. My question to you is this, uh, and I say this to you as one of the all-time great Olympians, is there a way for this industry to balance and match resets that are financed by guys like Larry Ellison with sports that are still being managed by an IOC or a FIFA or or organizations that are relatively stuffy. I personally am relatively pessimistic that the two can match, but, but what, what's your view? Well, I always get back to, would you run your business like that? You know, that's, yeah. that's, the, that's the, the, you know, would you manage your finances like that? Would you run your business like that? And if the answer is no, then I don't really hold a lot of hope for it, you know. Yeah. Um, so really, I think a lot of sports properties these days are, are trying to professionalise the way that they manage their activities and centralise their rights. Because the more we learn about the new technologies and so forth, it's too late once you've um, spread those those assets out. And that really is is the key you know when you especially when you're looking at how do we interact with the modern audience you know and you look at you know for example if we had to go through an authority or a let's say a committee to make a decision on the timing of our races right the length of the races because there's all sorts of debate out there there's there's all sorts of fans that you know the mad passionate sailing fans will say oh the races are too short you know and the, they're not technical the enough, all that kind of stuff. Well, you're getting a lot of pushback, aren't you, Sir Russell? You're getting a lot well, of pushback. Of course, you, when you make this sort of change, you get pushback. But we rely on the data. The data ultimately rules. You know, so 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 you're looking at viewership habits. You're looking at whether people, uh, the length of time that they're viewing it, whether there's drop off at, at certain times. Um, what's what's first of all, what the audience is, what's stimulating that. Uh, them to um, engage with the property and so forth. And most of that comment doesn't have access to that information. You know, so, so once you start looking at the data and you start you know, using the data to support your decisions, which is, you know, how most good businesses are managed these days, then you probably have a much better chance of, of actually making the right decisions and, and moving the sport in the right direction. I'll give you an example, timing of the races. When you look at the NBA, which which I you know look at as one of the properties that you really take notice of, of the groundbreaking stuff and, and you know how they're leading in many fields, in, in my view anyway. But you look at the way that they've broken it down into in, the game down into quarters, and in many ways they market the fourth quarter Amen. to... Amen. To, to, 
to a certain demographic. Well, that's the reason that we went to our format because there may be people that only watch our final race. They might just switch on, depending on what platform they're watching it, they might just watch the final race. They might not watch the full weekend. They might look at the highlights, scroll through the highlights, watch bits of it and watch the final race, or they might watch the, the whole content. But you've really got to cater to a wide spectrum of, of people. And even if you just consider sports alone and you look at the move into gaming and e-games and so forth and other activities, you know, we are challenged to get people's attention, keep them entertained and keep them connected with our products, you know. And so you have to move with the times, I think, and you have to look at what is you know, happening in the world today and try and get a handle on what's going to happen in the future to stand Russell, any chance of success. Russell, I'm, I'm, it's fascinating hearing this. I, for, for many years, I, I ran um, a very large global portfolio for HSBC. And one of the problems that I think sailing had, which I think you've been addressing through everything you just said, was clearly sailing is, a, if you're in sailing and you understand it, it's a very, very exciting sport, but it always had that block until the virtual um, sailing and virtual, as you say, technology came into the sport. Were you aware in your early years that there was this extraordinary niche to sailing, but it was so untapped? Because it seems to me what SailGP is doing is taking a sport, not just to a broader audience, but new audiences and capitalizing on both technology data, as you say, both on screen and off screen to, to attract sponsorship. When do you think you realized that there was so much in the tank that, that sailing hadn't yet identified? Uh, probably quite recently. And by recently, I mean, in the last, you know, in my terms in the last 15 years, you know, I always realized that there was this intrigue, you know, and, and what, of course, you can't appeal to everyone. But this intrigue between sports that you've got the aspect, the physical challenges and also the mental challenges. And I'm not just talking about the mental challenges of exhaustion, perhaps knowing the, you know, getting uh, what I would describe as worked over by the opposition or, or, or you working the opposition over, yeah. you know, and it's getting into their heads and so forth. Now I'm talking about something that's that's really a thinking game. So, so it's combining almost chess with the physicality of a sport, you know. That's always been of interest to me. And even better than that, it's the environment that's governing that. So the environment's changing the conditions and it's how you're reading the environment is a big part of, you know, success in sailing, as it is in sports, no doubt, like surfing and so forth. But th that to me was an, uh, intriguing, even as a kid, you know, that thought process that you have to go through to decide what course you're going to take because you can't just go in a straight line in sailing between two marks or not a, not on an F50, not on a subject. <laughs> you know, so, so, so you've got to choose your course and there are all sorts of factors that, that factor into that. There's the opposition, there's the wind changing wind conditions, there might be current and so forth. And so that to me adds another dimension to just the physical capability of sailing the boat. And I'm not just talking about the athlete's fitness, but just the, just the skill factor, you know, just even the driver driving the boat. Of course, the drivers in Sail GP are probably the, the absolute top drivers in the world, you know. If you yep. put a club on those boats, they might kill themselves, seriously, you know. So, yep. so there's a big difference there. But there's also a big difference in that decision making and that teamwork and, and and actually sort of identifying what decision you need to make, make it and, and in these modern boats, making it in a timely manner. Yeah, you're really having a lot of time to make it. So that to me is in, is intriguing as a sports person. And you've talked about sailing and you've talked about sail GP and these F these F50 boats. I mean, you've got excitement, you've got teamwork, you've got competition, you've got technology, all things which a lot of sponsors absolutely would jump in on to say, these are our visions and values. We want to use this as a metaphor. But it's always seemed to me that sailing's great advantage as well is that we live in a climatically challenged world, obviously, and, and very sadly, and, and sailing is in many ways the ultimate expression of, of green. But that's not new. You know, the, sailing's always talked about the green. With SailGP, which is, as I think you talked about it, being the F1 of 
of sailing now and something that is much buzzier and faster, easier to understand. What are you doing around the sustainability bit that means that you can really talk to sponsors and to the broader public through the the, the prism of sailing, but also through SailGP? Well, you know, here's here's something that's really interesting, I think, and, and this has grown out of the organisation. So I think the best ideas in organisations are, are the ones that actually are brought from beneath the organisation and, and then, you know, sort of everyone gets drawn in by it, you know. And, and we realised, you know, it, it, and this is going to sound incredibly obvious, and it is, you know, so, so we really... We really weren't that smart because it's, it took us, you know, quite a few years to to figure this out. But when we went through our organisation and realised that all of our teams, all of the participants, and everything, we have one thing in common, and that is we're all really passionate about the environment that we operate in. And part of the reason, a big part of the reason, as it turns out, was that they felt that this was, let's say, an environmentally a good showcase if you like it gave great imagery but then we sort of thought well that's not enough we want to do a lot more than that and we realized you know sort of well let's take that enthusiasm from within if you like and really develop it into something that 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 actually might do some good and hopefully a lot of good and so we really started to think about what our purpose would be and you know clearly these boats are powered by nature they do incredible speeds you know the the fact that they sail faster than the wind and up to four times faster than the wind is intriguing from a physics perspective you know absolutely (laughs) the physics is fascinating well yeah well yeah you know people don't realize if you set off a helium balloon and an f-50 raced a helium balloon downwind in most conditions, it'd beat it by three times faster than the helium balloon had travelled by the wind. And you sort of say, well, how can that be? And it's doing a zigzag course, so it's sailing. It's actually sailing a lot more distance than the helium balloon's tracking, and it's going a lot faster, straight downwind in the direction of the helium balloon. You know, so then we started to think, well, okay, yeah, we can use it as a showcase, but we want to be more than just a megaphone. You know, we want to actually show that we're shifting from just intention and great imagery and, and all that sort of stuff to actually action. And so we really, you know, start, started to think about that and, and, and what is our, our connection with nature and how can we actually do things that are actually examples to making this a better planet? And and so that sort of grew from there and, and we, 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 uh, we sort of came across, well, this the whole transition to clean energy and the race against you know, us destroying the world through polluting the the air um, and the fact that the impact that's having on the world through climate change, the potential for the oceans to rise and the dramatic impact that that's going to have on the world, we can really not only be a voice for that, you know, which is, which is I think, is really important that you create awareness around it, you actually get out and talk about this and, and, and bring it into the forefront of, of people's minds. That's one thing. But also actually showcase how we can influence change, how we can in, impact change, because we were far from perfect when we started off. We, you know, for, as an example, our F-50s would sail around and they'd be followed by boats burning fuel. And in fact, when we looked at our carbon footprint and got that track properly, we realised that 50% of our carbon footprint was was generated by our on-water operations. So then it becomes, okay, what do you do about that? How can we change and how can we actually use that as an example for how industry and others could change? We're partnering with a company called Evoy that's um, developing clean energy solutions, so electric motors in, the, in this case and reducing our own carbon footprint to the extent that we're the first climate positive sports and entertainment property in the world. It's manna from heaven because you're absolutely right. Sponsors want to have this showcasing, proving and, and showing out that, that there is, um, that, that climatic change is important to them. And everything that you're talking about, about competition, but also how you approach competition is well, a fantastic yeah, showcase. Yeah, a lot of people think that, you know, oh, sustainability is bad for our business. 
it's good. You know, we've found that as we develop solutions, it's good for our business. It's it's bringing our costs down. It's it's you know our remote uh, television production. We used to send fifty five people around the world to, to events to produce TV, and we used to use the traditional techniques of an OB truck and and send a graphics container around the world add to each event. And of course, we got a lot of pushback. Talking about pushback, we got a heck of a lot of pushback from within the broadcast industry when we started to move towards remote broadcasting because it just seemed senseless. You know, on the one hand, you had containers on site with people, with broadcast crews sitting in containers, but they're, you know, for example, at our events, the likes of Bermuda, Italy, you know, the UK, Denmark, Spain, France, et cetera, you know. So we've shifted that whole operation pretty much apart from, I think, uh, 13 camera people and sound engineers the whole thing's now operated out of our studios in london and so um uh, that's been a tremendous saving our, our race operations in actual fact uh, because our on water was a big part of our carbon footprint as i said our race director now stays in sydney to run the races we're about to move to a solution where our turning marks are totally driven by robotics so they won't need to be towed into position. They will actually manoeuvre by electric motors and uh, that'll all be controlled by our race director sitting in Australia. So it's... it's. it's I mean, it's it, it, there's so much going on and, 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 and you're obviously, I mean, sponsors want it, the world needs it. it, it's important. Going back to the sailing bit, because you've unearthed something that I think is really exciting. I'm not a sailing guy, but I have watched America's Cup in the last few years where it's got more and more exciting. I'm very aware of Sail GP going around the different legs and the nationalities racing. What else is in the vision? I mean, you're now, you've kind of uncorked the bottle of opportunity to say, right, Sail GP is going to embrace technology, embrace the opportunity, embrace new fans, be quicker, tear up the rule book if need, need be. What else have you got um, under the hood that you may be thinking about unveiling that is going to kind of keep keep pushing the boundaries? Yeah, we, we, we're doing some things the same as other sports. Like we've, we've launched a, a new content series called Racing on the Edge. It's, it's sort of behind the scenes, giving, yeah, giving people access behind the scenes. One of the things with the teams racing in equal boats, the secrecy drops away. So you can really go behind the scenes and open up. In actual fact, the data is in the public domain anyway, so we can really give the true story. And we're launching our second episode, season two. Um, I think it's just after this weekend. It's a fantastic insight into one of the athletes, actually, and the challenges that they have. And those human interest stories, of course, you know, we're not the only ones doing it. Yeah, that's what works now. Yeah. But that's, but that's, that's sort of filling the void, I think. To, you know, people need to understand the personalities to really follow it, you know. And I keep saying to our people, look, if, if we can make people connect with either one personality within their territory, then we'll be winning interest and in, in, in winning audience. So that's good. And I'm intrigued, Russell, who, in your in your career, I mean, you're right, Netflix have done this with documentaries and a lot of sports have unveiled the kind of titans of both sport, but also the personalities behind them. I'm wondering in your sport over your, your long career, who were the sailors that had massive characters that you would love to have seen sort of um, oh. exposed on, on Netflix for being larger-than-life characters? Because I suspect you've got a lot of stories. Oh, they would have been they, they would have been <laughs> Netflix stars for sure. You know, guys like Ted Turner or uh, there's some, you know, I mean, most people would know who Ted Turner is or certainly most Americans would. Um, he was larger than life. I mean, just outrageous and probably wouldn't get away with half the stuff he got away with back then, you know, in the modern era. But a, a fascinating personality. People were drawn to him because of his personality, not necessarily because of his racing skills. It was the personality that drew them in, as we see, you know, in all sorts of sports and all walks of life. Uh, there's another guy that was one of his opposition, actually, that was uh, uh, Tom Blackhaller who was the same, different type of uh, approach, but the, the same, you know. Then you had, of course, Dennis Connor, big bad Dennis, as, as we refer to him in New Zealand, but he's, he's really not, you know, but he was a tremendous talent. But I would describe as sort of the Babe Ruth of sailing, you know, the, the, he definitely had some 
aspects of his personality that were, you know, he wasn't the most disciplined person out there in terms of you know, looking after himself, but he was certainly one of the most, you know, talented sailors that I've ever raced against. That's for, that's for sure. Just naturally talented, naturally switched on, switched on to all, everything that was going on around him, you know, incredible and pretty good, you know, technology wise as well. And do you think with this modern this modern generation, this new generation of of sailors as drivers, as you called them, can you see those personalities really coming through already? And can it, presumably then from a sort of editorial documentary shoulder content, as I think the broadcasters uh, call it, is that something that really excites you of bringing the personality of of sail GP and sailing to life, which perhaps hitherto has been a bit behind the scenes? Well, yeah, but telling the real story too, telling the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, and the sailors are getting used to it. You know, they've all, of course, it's modern sports, so they've all been media training and so forth. You've got to get through those barriers and get behind the scenes and really give people a true insight about what's really going on. So, you know, for example, this next episode that's just about to be released talks about one of the drivers or helmsmen that's that's they're currently leading the series so so it's obviously the spanish uh, helm but he's gonna lose his place on the team because they said right from the get-go that they he's not spanish they want a spanish driver driving the spanish team which is fair enough you know but where does he go from here and is he going to break into another team or not you know that sort of thing is fascinating particularly when you when and he did. He has allowed the cameras, you know, briefly into into some of the behind the scenes stuff of, of of his life and what he has to go through to get to the top and push his way in to be recognised alongside people like Ben Ainsley and so forth. Which so that's fascinating. You mentioned there um, for the first time on the show the fact that CLGP is organised around national teams, and you know I find that quite fascinating when I do watch racing on the edge it's very clear that you guys are are kind of like ramping up a little bit of the antagonism which you know that's the playbook i'm not there's no criticism there so it it, it strikes me that you know like a lot of the other challenger sports that we've had on this show whether it's the, the triathlon guys or even people like the you know the new lacrosse league you're working to a very clear playbook around uh, media content and how it needs to be and, and de- demographics. You know, we've talked on this podcast about chess, about maximum physical effort, about environmentally correct, about physics and and, and, and obviously STEM, and, and that's that whole world of algorithm and data and machine learning and ultimately AI and the discipline that comes with sailing. You know, I don't think there's anybody even in the very best challenger sports that ticks all the boxes like you guys do. So so he, here's my question now. You started the podcast, Sir Russell, about saying, would you run it like any other business? So I'm going to ask you a little bit about the business. This is a perfect business for building a direct-to-consumer uh, community that you then monetize under that business model. I want to ask you this. Those teams that you've got just now, and there's six or maybe more, and they've all got a, a country name. Um, eight. Do you, eight, eight. Do you ever think that you're going to follow the IPL cricket model and you're going to sell those as franchises to other investors? Oh, definitely, and it's already happened. So so we, we, we haven't announced yet our ninth team, but we we are soon going to announce our ninth team, and that's fully fledged franchise team of course larry allison underwrote this which was fantastic you know in any business venture like this you need a a good underwriting so he's underwritten it for at least the first five years according to our business plan we're tracking ahead of that plan uh but we are that we are going to introduce a ninth team and there are already pretty active discussions on the 10th team and once we fill the 10th team, then we're going to go back. And there's already active discussions around the existing teams too about ownership. Um, then we're I going bet to go and start, And there may be some trading of those teams. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. You may not want to say, but is there a franchise fee involved? Well, there's an ownership fee involved. Wow. Uh, 
that's it's it's twenty. It's currently twenty million dollars for these teams, which I would say is, you know, depending on how optimistic you are, I think it's I think it's pretty relatively uh, cheap. Let's say at this point in time, it's like anything. People that get into it early, I think they get a better price. In actual fact, one of our major partners that's involved, Rolex, they called us before we even raced a race, and if essentially. Um, took the category that they did and you know i think they're very happy with the arrangement we're still very happy with the arrangement but they they chose to get in early having the underwrite from larry allows us to make decisions around when we expand and when we sell and what price we sell at probably um let's say we've probably got more leeway than some organizations in the same position the good thing for us is that all the rights are centralized we can slice and dice this the way we want in the way that makes business sense and also delivers value to our partners so there's not just one solution and to and especially when you go to different territories you may have different solutions for different territories so let, let, let me just try and be specific here because I, I know a lot of people listen to this show that are always looking. So if I've got this correct, if I've got 20 million burning a hole in my pocket just now, I can come to Sale GP and create the Roger Como team and I can race in Sale GP. Yes, in, in, in theory, yes, yes. Wow, uh, wow, wow. It costs approximately, you know, let's say there are costs, controls around the teams and so forth it's obviously they're all racing with the same equipment of course we're enhancing the equipment all the time you know so we're developing new foils and so forth but everyone gets access to that at the same time so essentially it costs seven million dollars a year to to run these teams depending on how many events we have which is you know we think is very achievable and and in fact that's demonstrated by some of the first new teams that are coming into this uh, into the league now um, even eight teams is a lot when you look at the size of the technical facilities and so forth, and we'll improve that. But there's still a limit, and and yeah. we think is probably the limit at this point. There's obviously some markets that we would love to have involved, you know, and, and I'll say this openly: countries like Germany, uh, Italy, um, you know, you can imagine some of the Asian countries would be, you know, fantastic to have involved. Of course, that depends a lot on sailing talent so i've mentioned germany and italy they're two countries that currently have very very high level you know, olympic athletes yeah. in, their, in their in their country so that would you know, because we want the teams to be competitive as well because if they're competitive that helps them work commercially so yeah i i, I could easily see um you know competition for, for these franchises in fact you know just the discussions around the 10th team that, that are going on now there's definitely competition so and then of course as i said you know then then you start to move into well the only way in is to buy an existing franchise well of course and and you know let, let's think about it if, if a, a bog standard mls team franchise today is getting close to half a billion what have you got here you've got a, a maximum of 10 say just because the race can't work but more than that once everybody the penny drops about what sale GP is, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of competition for those franchises, and you know, I, I don't know, but I think if I had twenty million, I would be spending a couple of months seeing if this is right because, like I said before, I don't see anything else, Sir Russell, that ticks all these boxes. Well, yeah, well, we think so, and 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 that's why we're getting you know so much interest right now. And, you know, the, largely the teams at the moment, too, are relatively brand free. You know, we, we do have some, obviously, some partners and we are building that. We will sell title to the to the league. But yep. essentially we've kept the teams relatively, well, as clean as we can at, at this point in terms of partnerships for this reason. But now we're getting active with the uh, uh, franchise sales and the team sales. That's I think we're doing that in the right order. So yeah, it's it's uh, I think so far so good. We've obviously it's not an easy environment out there at the moment either. You know, so you, to you, make, mean, you mean with COVID? 
Well, yeah, t- t- with COVID and the dis- disruptions that are going on, you know, it's it's not easy to make headway at this time, but we're, we're making some pretty good steps, which I think is indicative of the quality of our racing. I mean, I think we are the most exciting racing property on water, for sure. You know, and, well, maybe and, not. Maybe not just on water. You know, if you look at your direct competitor, which is F1, you know, its problem is that people can't tell who the best driver is because of the, the different cars. You, you've eliminated that problem. Formula One doesn't work so well because there are many races where you can't overtake, like the last race where Verstappen just went uh, coast to coast and, and nobody got close to him. You've got constant overtaking. You've got, um, and I don't think people realise, you have a look at these F50s. They're flying machines and, and, and like, you know, <laughs> this going really, really quick. And, uh, you know, it's a young sport. The people look young. They're good looking. It's got everything. And if anybody's listened to this, have a wee look when they say what, what sports and um, property should invest in. Have a look at a, a sale GP franchise, in my humble opinion. Yeah, it's it, well. Thanks for that. Obviously, you know, I mean, I'm an F1 fan, so I look at what what they do, and, and I'm in awe of it. You know, so if if we can be mentioned in the same breath as them, that's that that's that's amazing. But I agree with you. Our racing is amazing. You know, we do get passing. We had three different teams on the podium in our first two events this year. Yeah, I saw that's that. Not, that's not manufactured. You know, that that's just happened. You know, and I think we'll see more of that. You know, it's 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 fascinating to put these very very top athletes and give them the, exactly the same equipment, so they've got no excuses. You you take the New Zealanders for example. They've just won the America's Cup. They're, they're sort of considered top of the world. They came in and had it not been for the USA and the Japanese teams crashing in Bermuda, they probably would have finished seventh in their first event. You know, pretty rude awakening for them, you know. And make no bones about it, as a top sports person, you worry about those results, you know. (laughs) They won't want to be coming into their next event, which is going to be in Aarhus in Denmark because they're currently doing the Olympics. They won't want to be coming in and finishing at the back of the fleet. You know, so, so Russell, it, it's it's all of this is is fascinating, particularly Roger's point about you know horses to back, and it looks like Sale GP certainly uh, the bookie's favourite from, yeah. from, from Roger Mitchell, and he's, he's 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 a wise old bird. Just quickly for those of our listeners who are not sailing experts, tell me about the rest of the calendar, just quickly for for, for the rest of the for the year, given we've had COVID and there's been disruption. But what are we looking at? So we're in Plymouth on the seventeenth and eighteenth. So yeah, come along, great day. You'll be blown away. You know, it'll be it'll be not what you expect, that's for sure. Aarhus, which is in Denmark, De- Denmark's second biggest city, on August twentieth and twenty first. Then we drop down to France and in, in Centre Pay on the eleventh and twelfth. Then we go to Cadiz in in or Cadiz as as as, they, as I correctly say it, in uh, in Spain on the October 9th and tenth. Then we go drop down to uh, Sydney, Australia on the 17th and 18th of December. Then Christchurch, New Zealand on the 29th and 30th of January. And then we finish with our grand final in March in San Francisco, March 26th and 27th next year. And then we start it all again in season three. Well, do you know, those are all places I'd very much like to come. So I'm going to be booking flights once we're allowed to as soon as possible. So Russell Coote, we um, have taken a lot of your time and it's been a wonderful trawl to uh, to go through both your, your career and, and your thoughts, but maybe more excitingly for us, a sport that's looking to the future or has already looked to the future, has embraced the future. Something I think I can say, unfortunately, a lot of sports still trying to figure it all out it feels that cell gp have got a very smart plan so on behalf of roger and i and all of the are you not entertained team thank you very much for one joining us and secondly best of luck with what is a very very exciting international season well thank you very much thanks for allowing me to join thanks sir russell thanks for your time i really appreciate it thank you thank you thanks guys cheers now I think that was uh, one of the most interesting interviews we've had. You know, you would have heard at the end, Giles, that, you know, my financial head was whirring a little bit in the last little bit of questions. I think I think that is something to really look at. I'm maybe going to make a couple of calls after this recording. Uh, humble guy for somebody who's achieved so much. Just a lovely interview. Yeah, you're right. And I think what's 
been lovely for us is that we've listened to two or three years where we've tried to plot out what the sports industry needs to look like going forward. And I think with Sam Renouf at PTO, we had a very good, uh, yeah. a good vision of where they wanted to be. It feels that obviously with the, the funding of Larry Ellison and the experience of a Sir Russell Coots with people like Sir Ben Ainsley and some of the astonishing talent, technology, sustainability, they've got a lot of boxes ticks. And I think you're right with the competition. And then to have a financial model where there are only limited ways in and it's going to cost you more, which is, as you say, IPL, you've got something that will self-sustain, self-grow, whilst being very much of the time. He didn't really talk about the esports side of thing. He didn't talk about some of the other extraordinary technology that they've already employed to take this sport forward. I think it, I agree with you. I think this is a horse to back. And, and remember, you know, in the past, like a lot of sports, um, people would say, oh, yeah, it's great, but, you know, the entry cost is so high. You know, where am I going to get a boat? Well, if you look at these foils now, you know, it's so much easier to get involved. Listen, you know, with this modern generation and, and the way they want to approach the earth and, and the environment and nature, I can see a lot of people on foils, Giles, a lot of people. Yeah, it's causing me a little bit of a headache, though. Obviously, with the captain's table sailing a pirate ship around, I mean, there's nowhere oh, to have you... a decent three-course meal. So I don't, they, haven't <laughs> the thought, they, have, they haven't thought everything, have they? Look, we must we must crack on. I think it was a great show, and it, just, what a privilege also to have, you know, you talk about, one talks about giants in sports, and sailing isn't maybe the biggest sport in the world compared to your footballs or your crickets or your American footballs, but certainly within sailing, uh, to have Sir Russell Coots, who is undoubtedly the giant of America's Cup and at the Olympic Games and of sailing in general, uh, what a joy to have him on our United yeah, Entertainment. Big privilege, a big, a big kudos for us. So um, let's wrap it up, Giles. As always, folks, find us on the, the platform of choice and rate and review us. You can follow us on Twitter on the Are You Not Entertained Twitter handle, which is Entertain Are The Words. And you can follow me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And you can follow myself at RPM Como as in the lake. As in the lake. And in case anyone was wondering what had happened to Grant Williams, he has not fallen in the lake or disappeared off. He's just, he's, um, he's busy this week. So uh, it's just me and Rog, which is a joy as well. <laughs> Never ask where Grant has been. You know that's the that's the golden rule. There's sometimes he has to do certain missions. You don't ask. He just doesn't turn up. We move on. No questions. No questions asked, and we move on. Lovely to see you, Rod. Take care, Giles. Bye bye. <laughs>